NASCAR's Kevin Harvick, the number four driver with one of the most exciting victories to ever end a NASCAR season. Here you are, you've got one race and that's all that matters. The 2014 Sprint Cup champion says racing has been part of his life since the age of five, thanks to his father. As I grew up, I was always around the race cars. He was a fireman uh, as his primary job and worked on cars on the side. But Harvick admits a broken home and a pivotal move eventually tore the two apart. You think he's come around? You know, I don't know that that'll actually ever all come back around. Tapped is Dale Earnhardt's replacement. He remembers the tragedy that shocked the sport and thrust him into the spotlight. There was a lot of things that, that happened in a really short amount of time, you know, when Dale died. It explains the difficult departure when he eventually left Richard Childress Racing. I understand the hardest part of all of it for you was having to tell Richard. I've never been more uh, nervous in my whole life. Harvick also admits to lessons learned from his once negative reputation on the circuit. I mean, when I started, I was 25 years old, and you didn't really care what anybody else thought. And how having a son has changed his life perspective. Had a greater impact on you winning the championship than switching teams. You've kind of stumped me because I, I've never really thought about it like that. We sat down with the Stuart Haas driver at the NASCAR Hall of Fame in Charlotte and began with the death of Earnhardt and the sudden unexpected news that Harvick would be the replacement. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I wanted to uh, talk to you a little bit about your racing mentality. Um, to, to what extent when you're out there racing, do you always feel like you're the best driver? on the racetrack? Well, I think, you know, for, for me, I always feel like, um, you know, given the right circumstances that you can beat anybody on the racetrack. And I think that's, in sports in general, there's that confidence of, of you know, you don't get to that level because you don't think you can win. Um, you know, I, I always feel like, you know, when you're in, in position to, to win a race that, that you have that control uh, of trying to make it happen. And, and hopefully more than not, we, you know, have had good success in, in making that happen. So I think, um, you know, when you look at it, you, you probably asked Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon the same thing, and they would, they would tell you that they could beat the, the rest of us as well. So it's just, a, it's just kind of that, uh, that confidence that you have in, in knowing um, that you can get the job done. What do you see when you're going 200 miles an hour around the racetrack? I always tell people it always it always it's like driving down the highway, you know. It's everything just well. You just become accustomed to your surroundings and, and you get used to the speed and you get used to your body adjusts, your mind adjusts, your eye adjusts. And, and you know when you first go and do things at you know get back in a car at Daytona, things are going to be happening pretty fast. But as you do that and you get more comfortable in, in your environment and things just slow down and. Um, you really don't realize how fast you're going until you hit something. <laughs> what do you hitting something always puts it back into per, into perspective. What do you think about? Uh, you don't think about anything. You know, you get in the car and, and you know exactly how you want the car to feel and what you need to do. And, and you've been through a lot of a lot of the situations. It's it's really no different than than you showing up in the morning and working on whatever your next story is going to be or, or preparing. You try to prepare, uh, whether it be from a mental standpoint, and, and you just you know what you need to feel like, you know what you need the car to feel like, you know uh, if something's not right, and, and you try to relay as much information as you can uh, to, to get that feel and, and those situations how you know they need to be. Will you ever daydream? I don't think I ever daydream. Maybe under a, I, a red... Will you think about something else other than 
no. racing, like your son or family yeah. stuff. Go ahead. You know that that doesn't really ever happen. And I think when those when that when that day comes and you're not focused on on what you're doing, um, you know that's probably when when you've got other things going on in your mind in, in the car. It's probably the day that getting close to the day that you might want to get out. How aggressive are you on the racetrack? Well, I was I was brought up to you know to to be the aggressor. You know, it's it's. Um, in my mind, nine times out of ten, the aggressor usually wins. And you know, this, especially in our new format, you know, being aggressive is is something that, um, you know, and trying to win races is is what is going to be the most beneficial for you. And you you rubbed some people the wrong way early on. Well, here's um, here's what I've figured out over the years, though. Okay. You're never going to make everybody happy. Okay. And you know, you have to as long as you can go home and put your head on the pillow and. and and be content with it, everything's good. I, I, there was one driver that was quoted as saying, I think after your first year in <laughs> the now Sprint Cup series, that you know, you've uh, like lost respect from yeah. some drivers for childish behavior. Yeah. Looking back on that now, it, what, what do you think? Yeah, well, th that's probably right. You, you think, think so? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think when you look back, and, and you look back at probably a lot of guys in, in, the, in the series that come through, our sport has a great way of policing itself, mm -hmm. and when you get those situations where you come in and, and you don't know any different. I mean, when I started, I was 25 years old, and um, you didn't really you didn't really care what anybody else thought. You just wanted to go in and you know try to win races and, and have fun. But there's a there's a respect uh, that you have to that you have to gain from the garage and the, and your peers and drivers and owners. Um, because if you don't, it'll, it'll it has a strange way of just flushing you out. And you know you become non-existent. So, you know you have to you have to uh, you have to fit in, and you have to be able to um, compete in in a in a somewhat fair way, um, and and balance that with you know trying to win and and trying to also be fair uh, to the competition. So it's it's definitely a balance. But our garage has a has a funny way of uh, uh, of the guys that have been there for a long time of making it really hard on you. Uh, as you go through the go through the years. Well, and it's interesting you say that because the, the, you know there was a period early on where I think you're suspended twice. So yeah. or, I'm sorry, you're fined twice over the course of a year, and the second time you end up being like suspended for a week. And your owner Richard Childress calls you in, and I believe you were concerned you might actually get yeah. let go. So how do you think you've changed since then? Well, you can't fight every fight, and and the biggest thing is um, you know especially last year. This, there's, there's no need to have a sideshow. Uh, if you're going to be successful and, and win races and put all the effort into, into to winning races and winning a championship, that's all you're going to be able to focus on. Because if, if you get too far into that sideshow, um, you're talking about all the things that you don't need to be talking about. They're asking your crew chief and your team and your owner um, all the things that, that they don't need to be talking about. So the more you can detract from all that stuff, Things are going to happen, but the, the quicker you can put all that stuff behind you and get the focus back on driving the car and focusing on, on what you need to focus on, the better off you're going to be. It took me a long time to realize that, but it's, it's much more productive. Dale Earnhardt, uh, Daytona 500, 2001, you know, final lap, he obviously crashes and ends up dying. What do you recall from watching that crash? Yeah, you know, um, we were at home, just watching the watching the race, watched it to the end, watched the crash, turned it off, and left the house. Um, you know, it didn't look like anything abnormal or 
um, any harder crash than, than you've ever seen before. So, you know, Delaney and I, I don't remember exactly what we were doing that day, but we turned the race off and left. And next thing you know, your phone is just blowing up. And um, obviously at that point, we knew that, that something was, was wrong. And then I called and got the details. And then uh, a lot of the people from, from RCR um, met up at, at uh, Mike Dillon's house, who was my teammate in the Xfinity series at that particular time. So, um, yeah, there was a there was a lot of things that that happened in a really short amount of time. You know, when Dale died, um, the company nobody really knew where to go. So, you know, I think it was the Wednesday night uh, of the next week. Uh, I got a call from Richard as I was laying in bed. And he asked me to come to the office, and it was uh, Richard Childress and Kevin Hamlin, who was the crew chief at the time, Bobby Hutchins, who was the, uh, the team manager at the time. Um, and I'll never forget walking in. I've been in Richard's office a few times, um, but that night, was, that night was different. Richard was sitting behind his desk, looked like he hadn't slept in, you know, three days, which he probably hadn't. Uh, Kevin Hamlin had a bottle of Jack Daniels uh, in a cup and just sitting there, and, and he obviously had plenty of, uh, plenty of cups of Jack Daniels, and they were just trying to figure out what they wanted to do, and they asked me to drive the car. And at that, at that point, it was really about just trying to keep the company afloat and survive and, and not just have the emotions of the whole situation shut the company down. So for me, I wasn't as, de I wasn't as attached to it as, or to Dale um, as obviously all those guys were. I was, I'd only been there for a year, um, and you come into a situation, you're like, well, you just got to do what you got to do. And you'd never raced in the Sprint no. Cup before. <clears throat> no, I'd never raced uh, in, in the Sprint Cup car. The ironic thing about the whole thing was we had just signed America Online. I was going to run seven races that year, and then the next year be full-time uh, on the Sprint Cup circuit. And my first race was actually supposed to be Atlanta. We had actually been there to test and, and uh, run, run the car that we were going to race. And, and um, so there's just a lot of... A lot of weird things that, that happened in, in that time. So that Wednesday night, I told him I would, would drive the car and um, went through the next couple of days. Just everybody's just kind of not really knowing what to do. And um, you come home and you well, tell, we tell had a your lot wife. Of things, we had a lot of things going on. Yeah, I told it, my wife. And she, she thought it was just for one race. <clears throat> right. So I told my wife, and, and um, we went to Rockingham that week, and we were actually uh, in the process of getting married. Um, and then we took over the, the uh, Dale's car, and we went to Rockingham and, and ran the first race. What do you recall from walking into the press tent at Rockingham? Yeah, that was um, that's still to this day the most uh, overwhelming situation that I've ever walked into because um, you know we were in the middle of uh, a practice session with which was then the Bush Series, um, and Richard pulled me out of the car to, to take me to the to the press session. Uh, walked in the tent. And there was hundreds and hundreds of people and flashbulbs, and it was a really, really dark, gloomy day in this huge white tent. And um, you know, I'll just never, never forget sitting down and just seeing all the uh, media and photographers and, and everything that, that was there that day. And you won your first race in just your third start. Mm -hmm. How would you explain the emotion of that victory? Yeah, there was a lot of firsts. Um, you know, I ran my first race in, in Rockingham. Um, we f actually flew out of the race with uh, Jeff Gordon and Brooke. We got on the wrong helicopter <laughs> and uh, had to come back to the racetrack, get on the right helicopter because the race had been rain delayed one day and we were supposed to get married uh, on that Wednesday or Thursday night. 
uh, in Las Vegas. That was kind of the neutral ground uh, for for her family, my family. Which is amazing. You talk about a life-changing period. Yeah. Not only do you get the Sprint Cup ride, you take over for right. Dale Earnhardt, and then you get married in the same yeah. couple weeks. Yeah, so I ran my first race at Rockingham. We get on the, uh, finally get on a home and get on the plane and, and get to Vegas. And, and uh, it was really almost a blessing in disguise because it really allowed uh, the guys on the teams and, and Richard and a lot of people to kind of get their minds off of everything for a little while. And um, so we flew out and had the wedding. And I think Delana ran down the aisle as fast as she could run, um, went out and, and uh, ran the cup race on, on Sunday and got my first top 10. Uh, I think we finished 14th uh, the first race. I think we finished seventh or eighth at, at Las Vegas. And I'll never forget, we were flying home and Richard bought a, I think he was born in 1945 or, or so. Uh, he had a, some, I don't know how much the bottle of wine cost. He said, if you win, win a race this year, we'll drink this bottle of wine. So then we went out and won the next week. And I, I don't know if we drank his, we, we did drink his 15 or $20,000 bottle of wine. <laughs> um, but, um, so yeah, you know, we go to Atlanta the next week and, and um, win the first race and um, you know, just, there's, there were so many things going on at, at that particular time that I, I honestly couldn't sit here and tell you probably anything that happened on that particular weekend. It was a big moment for, for me to, to win my first race, but that was almost non-existent with everything that was, that was going on uh, just for the fact that uh, you know, it was it was a really really big moment for RCR to, to continue forward and, and know that there was still life in the team to be able to to win a race and and start that healing process to to move forward. In talking to your wife about switching teams, um, she said she actually probably knew a couple of years before you that that was an important step for yeah. you guys to make. Why do you think it took you so long to come around? Well, Richard had been, you know, had obviously given me um, the opportunity to get to this level of racing. Uh, there were some, there were some important steps. I think the, the Wayne and Connie Spears piece was was very important. I went there to work as a mechanic back in 1997, hoping that maybe I would get the opportunity to drive because I was still living in California, and they were really the only only show in town, uh, and that worked out. But you know, I think for for me, Richard gave me the opportunity to come into the um, you know, the, the Xfinity series and then into the Cup series. So, you know, you felt this sense of loyalty to, to try to do all you could do to make it work. Looking back on it, it probably would have been the right thing to do to, to do what we did three years earlier when the, when the contract had ended before. But, you know, it's, it's um, everything has to be right. You know, you have to have that gut feeling that everything's right. Um, you know, and I think coming to, uh, to that decision was there's so many pieces attached to what we do and sponsorship and people and um, everything happens years in advance. So in order to get out of a situation, you know, I had, to, I had to basically say what I was doing a year and a half before my contract was actually up. So it created a lot of, uh, a lot of awkward situations, I guess you could say. Like what? Well, you know, when it all came out, it was 2012 when it was actually when all the news came out that, that I was going to leave RCR and leave the team. So, you know, they had to figure out how they were going to race with a guy that wasn't going to be on their team the year after. Uh, I had to figure out how I could race at my fullest potential to be able to 
still win races and not let them, them down on, on everything and the effort that they had put forth uh, into their cars. So it was, a, it was definitely a balancing act. And, and you know, obviously at that point, you know, they knew I didn't want to be there. They didn't want me there anymore just for the fact that I didn't want to be there. So you, you, you had to uh, figure out how to make it work so that you didn't let everybody down. So you had to, you had to suck it up in a lot of different ways to, uh, to be able to, uh, to, to make it all work. I understand the hardest or most difficult part of all of it for you was having to tell Richard. Yeah. What was so tough about that? Well, honestly, we couldn't get the, we couldn't get the, the, the time the times with our schedules lined up, it, it actually took a few weeks to, to be able to get it all lined up, to get a meeting with Richard, uh, to be able to actually go in and tell him. Because I didn't want um, Fred, who's the president of, of Kevin Harvick Incorporated and been, been with me since 1998, um, I didn't want him to go in and tell Richard. I wanted to go in and tell Richard myself. So uh, that, was, that was definitely the, the, the hardest part about the whole deal and I've never been more uh, nervous in my whole life, and, and at that particular point, you know that once you once you once once you sign that contract and you go in and tell them, it's it's that's it. There's no turning back. So, um, you know, we went through a lot of conversations and a lot of talk, and and just really felt like I needed to change because I didn't really like going to my job anymore, and and that wasn't wasn't healthy for everything at home, and and. Um, in the end, it, it turned out okay. What, what did you say in the meeting? I just, you know, I just, um, you know, we went into the, went into the meeting, and, and um, I remember them starting the, starting the meeting with, um, you know, some competition items and notes of, of where they were headed and what the company was doing, and and, um, and then I finally had to stop them and just say, well, I'm not here to, to talk about the future. I'm here to tell you that, I quit. So. You know that that obviously probably, for sure, caught them off guard because I don't think they were they were prepared for that direction of uh, of a meeting and and uh, you know it all went from there. So d drivers generally who haven't won a championship by their ninth year t typically never do, and you end up winning one yeah. uh, in your fourteenth season. The most stressful part of the championship season in the run to Homestead would be what? Well, 2014 was, was pretty interesting just for the fact that there was so much different. You know, for me, I spent the off season going to a race shop that um, I had to get my seat fitted because my, you know, the old team wouldn't, wouldn't even give them the inserts to my seat. So we had to, we had to start over. And that started with uh, putting a mold in my seat, uh, being able to uh, redo the whole inside of the car. And, and so I'd spent the winter with new people and new faces and new names and, and new everything. So you think you made the right decision and, and you know, we made the decision um, with the intent to hopefully be competitive and, and have a chance to, to win a championship, but you never know really how that's gonna go. So, you know, we started the year, uh, you know, you have that anticipation and, and nervousness that leads up to the first race. Uh, the tests had all, had all gone, gone really good, but once we got to Phoenix and won the first race, um, it all kind of started to not go so well uh, over the next few weeks. We had a lot, we had really fast race cars, but we weren't, uh, we were having a lot of things go wrong. But I would say that the, um, the most intense moment of the whole thing was, was probably still Homestead, just for the fact that, you know, you'd done everything that you thought you needed to do all year, you've had the success, and here you are, 
you've got one race, and that's all that matters uh, for the championship. So your wife described you winning as almost an out-of-body experience. Yeah. Uh, she didn't even watch yeah. the, the last couple laps. She she had her eyes shut and was listening to uh, on you know the the uh, radio, but she was crying. Uh, your crew chief's crying. Uh, other people are crying. My um, wife was a wreck. Was a wreck. Yeah. Well, you know, Delight has been, she's been a part of everything that we've done and, and been a part of all these decisions. And, and you know, she puts as much into it as I do. And, and those last 10 weeks, it was hilarious because she was, she was just an absolute wreck. And, and finally, when we went to Homestead, she had to get some medicine. So just to, just to control her emotions enough to be able to, to make it through the weekend because she, 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 uh, she knew there was a lot on the line and, and it, you know, it meant a lot. She knew what it meant to everybody involved in the situation and, and how much we had changed and put on the line to, um, you know, to, to put ourselves in this position as well. So uh, she was, she was uh, pretty emotional about it all. How does being champion change things? Well, I think the first thing it changes is you never have to answer the questions of, is this the year? Is this the year you're going to make it happen? Why can't you make it happen? And, and you never have to have that. You never have to have that little voice in the back of your head of, you haven't won a championship. You might not be able to win a championship. Um, we went through as pressure-packed a, a season as you can, and, and for confidence, um, you know, for myself and the team. Uh, I don't think you could ever do anything that, that uh, puts more confidence in you than, than what we did last year because we've been through the, the pressure, pressure cooker moments. Uh, we've built a new team. We learned new faces and new places. And, you know, everybody worked together as a group to, to make it happen. So there's, there's nothing better for confidence than, than all the situations that we went through last year. And not having to answer those championship questions anymore, uh, just you know you can do it. It's just a matter of having it all come together. Your wife, Delena, so she never uh, really expected to get married, apparently. Never thought she would uh, have a family. And then she tells me, uh, literally three months after you met her, you tell her you love her yeah. and that you want to marry her. Yeah. And then you end up crying when you propose. You <laughs> cry when you get married, which is yeah. completely inconsistent with anything anybody would ever expect coming from yeah. you of all people. I think those are tears of happiness. You know what I mean? It's, um, I, I would classify myself as an emotional person just for the fact that, you know, I get excited and, and um, you know, it's, it's, um, there's nothing wrong with, with uh, shedding a tear here and there. I'm not ashamed of that. How, how would you explain the role that she's had in your life? Well, Delena is, um, fortunately for me, has been around the sport for a really long time. Um, obviously, her dad grew up racing and she grew up in the in the pickup trucks or, or the box van going back and forth to the racetracks. So she understands the, 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 the time and, and dedication that it takes and how hard it is to, to be successful in this sport. So I think, um, you know, for me, I'm very fortunate to have that. And she's, uh, she was very involved in, in uh, you know, KHI when it was, when it was race teams. Um, and we talk about everything. You know, it's, we're, she's, she's, she's uh, definitely a critic uh, when I do things right or wrong, so she'll definitely give you an honest opinion. And like what? Oh, well, when I say something that I shouldn't say, or, uh, you know, you know, Texas this year, she was, she was like, what are you doing? Um, so, you know, it's, it's always good to have somebody that, that would give you that honest opinion because it really allows you to look at the situation and say, all right, was that right or wrong? Um, and sometimes there's not a right or wrong answer, but sometimes, you know, 
the, the emotions catch you up in, in some of the best moments and she's never shy about telling me if she thinks it, it was wrong. So she's been a, a big part of it and, and obviously uh, somebody who uh, I've had to lean on a lot over the last few years in, in, in getting through a lot of these situations because they haven't been easy situations to get through, um, you know, with, with having to go in and tell RCR that, that um, you know, I wasn't coming back and then having to race a whole year under those circumstances um, and then starting with a new team. Uh, so she's been through it all just as much as I have. Your director of business development says he believes having a son had a greater impact on you winning the championship than switching teams. What do you think? That's a that's probably a, I've never really thought about it like that, but that's probably um, that's probably a, a fair statement for sure. Just for the fact that um, you've kind of stumped me because I, I've never really thought about it like that. Um, His thinking was, you know, because before you were always 24/7 racing all mm -hmm. the time, and if you had a bad week, your bad race, you'd carry it over to the following week. Whereas right. now you have a bad race, it lasts all of two minutes till you get back to the motor right. home and yeah. see your son. I would, I would say that's correct because, you know, it's, it's, it's really, we've really established that week to week mentality of, of racing and, and it's not about whether you win or lose last week on Monday, it's about what do we need to win this week on Monday. And, you know, I think as, as you, uh, you def I've definitely gotten better at letting things go and I, I would definitely agree that, that um, you know, Keelan has, has really, allowed you to, to kind of, you have to look at the way that you handle yourself in a lot of situations and, and you still do things wrong, but there's no reason that you, you, you have to dwell on anything because it's just, you really don't, just don't have time. And he, he doesn't really care, to be honest with you, but you want to send the right perception and the right message and do things as good as you possibly can and you're going to make mistakes. Um, there's no doubt about that, but it's just a matter of realizing those mistakes and moving forward. But um, that's a great analysis of, uh, I, I would say that, that, that the balance that Keelan has added to our life has, has really helped. Your wife says her favorite moment from that, you know, championship day at Homestead was, you know, after the race, you and your son are up on the track throwing rocks. And yeah. I know you've said that's your, your favorite moment too. What about it? Well, that was a that was a cool week in general because we were in we were in Homestead for a while, and um, we went and bought him his first fishing pole that week, and, and he was, um, you know, casting the fishing pole back and forth in the water, and got to see his first fish uh, as we as we went through the the week in the lake behind, but you know, you have all those pressure cooker moments, and then you accomplish everything that you want to accomplish professionally in your in your life, and all of, all that happens, and uh, you spend three or four hours taking pictures and shaking hands and uh, just really happy about everything. And get to a moment where it's just you and your son and you're sitting next to the wall that you just you know, spent three or four days at and, and accomplished everything you wanted to accomplish and, and he's sitting up there and he's, he's excited about throwing rubber down the track or rocks and um, you, know, you just have those little intimate conversations uh, you know, that, that uh, you never, he, he just doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't know and he doesn't care about what you did. Uh, he just wants to have his dad around. And that to me is, is more important than um, winning a car race or uh, anything else that, that happened that day because 
he's he's more excited about having his dad around to, to throw rocks and, and that's where you just you don't want to have that void in his life you want to always you know you always want to be there for him to to be able to experience those moments as as you move through his life I, I know you and your dad are, aren't close I guess he drank too much and that's at least part of it how do you think going through that has impacted you as a parent yeah well I think I think um, you know I grew up in a, in a little bit of a broken house. Um, you know, the night I won my first late model race was the night my mom moved everything out of the house. So you go from, you know, having this moment where you think you've taken another step in your career to, you know, you know that dad's coming home to, um, he's coming home to nothing. And so, you know, there was, a, there was a lot of situations like that. Obviously, you know, he had, you know, he had a, had a drinking problem as, as I grew up, and you, you, you see and are exposed to a lot of things that, that you probably don't want to do as a, as a, as a parent as, as you go through, as you, go through um, you know, time. So um, for me, I think that, you know, those weren't great experiences um, as, as you grew up, but I think there were experiences that say, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be. You don't want to be like that. And you, and you, you know, you look at every situation at, at how can I be a positive influence in my son's life and, and not have to experience anything anything like I did. How would you handle those situations as a kid? Well, I think, you know, it's it's um, there's there's kind of different sections of it as as you go through go through my childhood. And obviously, you have the first part of it where all of us are, are together as, as a family and then you have the, the next part of it where um, you know everybody's kind of broken up and, and doing, doing different things and, and you're, um, my, my senior year in high school I spent a lot of time at, at my, what was then my best friend's house and, and stayed you know at his house a lot as, as we went through um, you know the school year and, and stayed away from it just because you didn't want to be around any of the rest of it. It was almost a it was almost a better environment to, to, to not be at home. So I think as you, um, as you look at um, all the pieces of it, um, you know, it was just, it was just not, a, not a perfect situation to, to be involved in. How do you think it impacted you? I think it had a, I think it had a good impact on me, to tell you the truth, because... Um, in what way? Well, I, I think you, you just, you see what you, what, how you don't want things to end up and how you don't want um, you know those memories to to be in in my son's mind. So you know, obviously, I grew up with my dad and my grandpa driving all over the country racing go karts and and um, you know what are perceived to be really positive um, moments. And and I had some great moments in my in my childhood, but there's also some some ones that that aren't very good. So you know you have to you have to remember those things, but you also have to move on and move forward and try to try to make your life as, as positive as possible and, and give him give I, I think it's made me better just for the fact that you want to give him what you didn't have. How pivotal a decision was it for you to make the decision to you know switch teams when your family was unable to afford? you going west? In 1995, 96, 97 were kind of pivotal years and in, in some pretty key decisions in, in, in my life. I was, gosh, I was probably 19, 20 years old or so right in there and we had gotten to a point where I felt like we were kind of stuck and, and didn't, didn't have any money to race and really the, the, only, the only show in town nationally was Wayne and Connie Spears. They had a, 
a Winston West team, a truck series team, and they had the money to race right. I had a friend who had uh, went to work down there and I told him, you know, I'd love to come down there and drive. And he said, well, you're not going to get the opportunity to drive unless you're here. Um, so I, um, I, went to, I went to college for about six weeks. I went to the Bakersfield Junior College for about six weeks. And I told my mom, I said, this is really not what I want to do. And she's like, well, you need to, if that's not what you want to do, you need to figure it out. And, and you know, if, if you're going to follow the racing dream, then you, need to, then you need to chase it. If it doesn't work out, the school will still be here when you get back. So I went down um, to work as a mechanic, hoping that I would somehow get the opportunity to drive. Uh, and you know, I think I, I signed up to, to go to work for $25,000 a year and got an apartment and stayed down there and commuted back and forth. And that was really probably the low time, the lowest that it, that it ever got with the my dad had a tough time with, with, that part of the, with that part of the move, just for the fact that um, you know, we'd always done everything together and, and he had to kind of step outside of that box to say, I'm gonna go do this by myself. And you know, that, was, that was really the, probably the biggest struggle uh, that, that we had amongst each other to go down and, and, and uh, go to work and, and see how it all worked out. So that was, that was kind of me stepping out of that box and, and almost, you know, I'm sure he felt like, you know, I was abandoning everything that, that we had built up, at, up until that point. Do you think you felt that? Oh, I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm sure he felt that way. But, um, you know, you just have to, just like everything else, you have to go with your gut, and, and sometimes there, there are some, there's some hard decisions to make. Do you, you think he's come around? Um, you know, I don't know that that'll actually ever all come back around. You know, I think that there's just... There's just so many things that, that, that happen along the way that, you know, I don't know that, that you can fix all of that stuff. Yeah, to, to what extent's there the desire, if at all? Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, I think that right now the, the best thing for, for myself and my family is to, is to try to do everything better than, than, you know, the way that I grew up. So that's really the focus right now. How did you get into racing in the first place? I got my first go-kart for kindergarten graduation. Um, my dad was into cars, and you know, as as uh, as I grew up, I was always around the race cars. He was a fireman uh, as his primary job, and worked on cars on the side to uh, to make some extra money. So uh, when I was in kindergarten, I got I guess I was five or six, and got my first go kart and started in a in a dirt field, uh, so I could learn right from left and gas from brake. Do you remember the fifth grade poster project? You, you created a poster like. I guess charting your ascension through NASCAR oh, yeah. that you were going to be a yeah. NASCAR champion someday. Yeah. Well, I think at that particular time it was an IndyCar champion. An IndyCar. Yeah. Cha okay. I wanted to win the Indy 500. So, um, you know, growing up as a kid, I grew up in Bakersfield, California. So I wanted to be Rick Mears was my idol, and that was the guy that that had won four Indy 500s, winning IndyCar races, and uh, being from the same town. That was what you wanted to do. But uh, as I grew up. You know, my dad didn't really want to have anything to do with putting me in anything open wheel, even though that we race go-karts. Um, but open wheel, bigger cars, he thought were unsafe. So it was always pushed down the, down the stock car road. But yeah, how tight were things financially? Oh, we, we, um, we, had some, we had very tight financials growing up as a kid. Um, you know, I think as, as you look back and, and realize what you were going through at, at, the, at that particular time, 
um, they did a good job of, of not letting my sister and I know exactly, um, you know, probably how tight things were. But I knew from how we raced our go-karts that, um, you know, five or six hundred bucks here and there to, to, to get to a race was, was a pretty big deal. Um, and, and we didn't always get to go race as, a, as, as we wanted to because we couldn't afford to, to drive up and down the road and, and pay for the motors and cart tires and all the things that came with it. How do you think going through those tight financial times has impacted you later in life? I think it's, um, you know, for me, I had my first checkbook when I was in the fourth grade. So uh, that, was, that was one thing that my dad did very well was I wrote the checks and paid all the bills for the racing team or the go-kart teams or late model teams, whatever it was. I had to balance the checkbook. I had to pay the bills. I had to make sure that, you know, if we didn't have any money, you were gonna, he made me call the sponsors and, and um, you know, ask for money myself in, in order to, to keep racing. So, um, you know, I think when you, when you grow up with not enough, I've always been pretty paranoid about being in this position and, and making millions of dollars a year, uh, you know, to, to not ever get to the point of being done not having any money because you see so many athletes that, that go through uh, these great portions of their career the next thing you know they're broke and, right. and for me it's always been I've always been pretty aware of, of where we were financially and where our money was going and, and how it was going and who it was going to and who was touching it um, so uh, I've always been a little bit paranoid because you know things financially were, were obviously pretty tight growing up but um, you know I think that's also helped um, give, give a great perspective on, on how to deal with the money that you make now. Tony Stewart, uh, obviously both your team owner and uh, close friend, and I think it was the second to last race of the season in uh, Phoenix. You win, and he's there greeting you, and pretty yeah. emotional. Yeah. How surprised were you by that? Well, Tony had, you know, Tony had been pretty supportive. Um, you know, to, to get this whole thing going when I, when I decided to, to come to Stuart Haas Racing. But as we got towards the end of the year and, you know, the pressure started to pick up, uh, Tony was always there to be the one to say, just keep grinding, just keep doing what you're doing. You don't have to do anything different. Just go out and race and always race to the last lap because you never know how, you're never out of it until it's over. Um, you know, so we won the race at, at uh, the last, the next last race at Phoenix. and. I don't know, we spent two or three hours with all the media and photo shoots and uh, Victory Lane. And um, I don't know that Tony actually came to Victory Lane that day. He was actually sitting in my bus uh, with my wife, uh, planning out the next week and, and what I was going to do and how I was going to do things and, and to get my mind off of uh, um, everything that was going to happen at Homestead and how the, how the press event was going to go. So that was the first person that I walked into, into the bus uh, after the race was, was with, with, with Tony and my wife uh, talking about how the next week needed to go in, in, in order to, to keep my mind off of things. So tell about this prank that you played on him in terms of setting his clocks ahead. You know, I, I, have, I, have, I have been blamed for this um, for several years, but I actually, I actually, didn't, I actually didn't even didn't even actually set the clocks forward. So really, <laughs> so do you know who did? I don't. I don't even know who did. But and I, you're I think sure it, it wasn't. It, it was not okay. me. But I'm telling you this right now, that it's the only time I've ever seen Tony Stewart an hour early to anything. <laughs> and he he made he made me very uh, aware of that situation by walking into my bus 
and you know, just walking straight into the bathroom. I look out of the shower and here's Tony Stewart standing in his, his driver's uniform because he's mad that he's up an hour early. <laughs> so I, I can't take the credit for that one, but I got all the blame. Didn't he try and get you back? Oh, that's constant. Okay. That never ends. So it's... Um, Has he ever done a good job at it? I wouldn't, I'm, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna go that far because if I, if I put a challenge out there, then it'll just go bad and then, and then he'll put the effort into it and then it'll, it'll come back to bite me. I mean, you have been known to pull a prank or two before. Tell about what you did uh, to your late father-in-law with this car. Yeah. Well, we, um, we were just kind of in this mode of, uh, you know, kind of doing different things to different people. And, and I think as uh, um, Delana's dad would just give us great reactions. So we went and bought I don't know, seven or 8,000 bouncy balls and filled the, uh, filled the floorboard of his truck up with, with bouncy balls. And he was in, he, that particular day, he was in a huge hurry to get to the golf course. Um, and he jumped in his truck and these bouncy balls rolled and rolled and rolled. And he was in there like a dog <laughs> throwing these bouncy balls out onto the ground. And um, I think he said a few foul words and, and got in his truck and left. Thanks for doing this, Kevin. No problem. Thank you. Appreciate you coming down. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.